This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org. You're listening to audio from one of our third Thursday webinars on Parkinson's research. In these webinars, expert panelists and people with Parkinson's discuss aspects of the disease and the foundation's work to speed medical breakthroughs. Learn more about the third Thursday webinars at michaeljfox.org webinars. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Maggie Cool. I'm on the communications team at the Fox Foundation. I usually produce the webinars, but today I'm joining as moderator. And we have a really fun episode this month with some of our foundation leadership. We are going to look back at a couple highlights from 2019, and then we want to spend most of our hour answering the questions that you all have. We hear so many different types of questions through our webinars, through in-person events. So we are going to give almost our full 60 minutes this month to just addressing what you all are wondering about. So let's meet our panelists. Today with me is Rachel Dolan, our Vice President of Medical Communications and Movement Disorder Specialist. Hi, Rach. Hi. And uh, Brian Fisk is our Senior VP of Research Programs. He leads our targets and therapeutics portfolio. Hi, Brian. Hi. And Mark Frazier is also SVP of Research, and he leads our biomarkers portfolio, how we measure PD. Hi, Mark. Hey, Maggie. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So let's go in and discuss uh, some notable programs and initiatives from 2019. So Rachel, why don't I turn it over to you and you talk about a couple of the things that you've been working on this year. Sure, I'll, I'd love to start. So two of the things that I'm most excited about that uh, I've been working on, one is the Guide on Cognitive Changes, uh, which you um, have in your uh, resource list. So through my role, I often talk with patients and families, and one of the things that I regularly hear is that they're very concerned about cognitive changes in Parkinson's disease. Um, this is a, a symptom that can happen through Parkinson's disease, and people with Parkinson's and their families often express that they don't know when this can happen, what this can look like, and how to manage these symptoms. And so I worked with people with Parkinson's, their care partners, and clinicians who care for people with Parkinson's and their families to develop a guide that helps people understand what these symptoms are, what they can look like, and how to manage them. And so, as I said, this is a pretty comprehensive guide that people can download and can take from this guide what serves them most. The other thing that I'd like to mention, as you see on the screen, is the Edmund J. Safra Fellowship in Movement Disorders. So this is a global program that trains movement disorder specialists, which are neurologists who have additional training in diagnosing and treating people with Parkinson's disease. We often talk about how important it is for people with Parkinson's to get this expert care, if possible, but we don't have enough of these movement disorder specialists. So in 2014, we worked with our partner, the Edmund J. Saffer Foundation, to launch this program, which every year grants funding to five academic medical centers around the world, which each train a new movement disorder specialist. So since 2014, we have graduated 10 new movement disorder specialists around the world, and we have 16 more who are in training right now to become movement disorder specialists. Brian, before I let you go on, Rich, um, 
building off the fellowship program, we actually just got a question about why someone would need to see a movement disorder specialist, especially if they really like their neurologist and feel that their doctor's competent. Can you just quickly talk about what role that person plays on a care team? People with Parkinson's who see movement disorder specialists typically report feeling um, better informed about their care. And um, movement disorder specialists, as I said, because they do have that additional training in diagnosing and evaluating people who have Parkinson's disease, typically are better equipped to manage Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's is a very complex and complicated condition. And because they see more people with Parkinson's disease, movement disorder specialists are more up to date on the research, more equipped to manage that, that complicated condition and all the symptoms that can come with it, both the movement symptoms, the non-movement symptoms, managing the medications that can go along with it. If you have a neurologist, and sometimes it's, it's hard to get to a movement disorder specialist because there aren't ones in your area. You can see a neurologist for your regular care, but it is good to see a movement disorder specialist at least once for, you know, if you're um, if around the time of your diagnosis and then at least once or twice a year for a good check-in, if you can. Great. So it's not so much an either or, it can be an and, which is nice to know. Absolutely. Okay. Brian, why don't you talk to us about expanding genetic analysis in diverse populations? Sure, sure. So, so I think you mentioned uh, kind of at the start, I think the last webinar that was uh, really popular around sort of the progress in therapeutic development for Parkinson's and sort of what that therapeutic pipeline looks like. And I think one of the key drivers of that progress uh, over the years has been our increased understanding of the genetics of Parkinson's. So sort of the underlying genetic differences in people with Parkinson's that might at least explain some of their risk for the disease. And, and that's actually, I think, uh, been a big um, sort of driver, again, of that progress in the pipeline. And, but, you know, perhaps not surprisingly over the last, you know, 15 or 20 years that where we've seen that progress, a lot of that study and a lot of that research has largely been done uh, in people of Caucasian descent, so sort of, you know, traditional kind of white European Caucasians. And so over the last, I would say, you know, couple of years, there's been a growing interest and desire to increase um, the sort of diverse understanding of the disease across lots of different populations outside of just the, the traditional Caucasian groups. And so uh, this year in particular, I was particularly proud uh, of, of sort of leading some of the efforts here at the foundation to uh, increase some of that diversity in some of the genetic uh, projects that we've been funding. And uh, since uh, the start of the year, after some initial conversations with some different groups, uh, we've now deployed uh, actually a little over five million or so dollars of research to focus specifically on uh, increasing genetic information from uh, various populations around the world. And some of these populations are, for example, groups in uh, populations in India, populations in East Asia, uh, populations in Africa, and more recently uh, have funded a, a group to uh, expand work in, in Latin America, particularly in South America. So it's really, really important, we think, to, to, to increase this diversity because there's a lot of still unknown genetics around the, the, the potential causes and contributors to Parkinson's that we think we can find. And we think looking at some of these populations is really important, not only for better understanding Parkinson's in those groups, but uh, again, because of the combined 
uh, um, sort of insight we'll get broadly about Parkinson's around the world. Um, related to that, I think, you know, in addition to just the genetics, I think we're seeing the growing pushes and increases in just increasing the diverse voice of Parkinson's patients in the community and, and, and other types of studies. And so kind of in parallel to looking at genetics, we've also been working with various groups to just think about how can we better engage the, the broader pop Parkinson's population and so what are some of the unique recruitment challenges and other uh, uh, challenges that might exist in engaging some of these populations. And so uh, some members of our team have been working on different types of strategies to do that. And, um, and finally, I would say just in the sort of broader theme of diversity, I think one thing we're starting to see too is even just our a better understanding of the diversity of Parkinson's disease. So, you know, even beyond sort of the traditional kind of Parkinson's, defined Parkinson's disease, thinking about sort of the broader Parkinson's, uh, uh, Parkinson-isms, as they're called, that have sort of core Parkinson's features, but that might have other types of symptoms and, and components to it. So I think we're, we're seeing this sort of broader diversity conversation, um, you know, across a, a number of different dimensions uh, that are impacting some of the work we're doing in funding. Great. So Parkinson's and these similar disorders are really global problems, and it's going to take all of us working together to find the cures for, for everyone living with these diseases. I know we're going to touch on later in our hour diving into some of those Parkinsonisms and also genetic testing and the role that um, people can play in the research. So more to come on that. And Mark, uh, it's so important to be able to measure Parkinson's, to predict, to diagnose, to track PD. Can you tell us about some of the projects that are working toward those aims? Yeah, Maggie, one of the big challenges in Parkinson's disease and really all of the brain disorders is to understand and know what's happening within the brain um, when people are living with Parkinson's disease. We have no way right now to take a biopsy of the brain in a living person and look at it under the microscope. So um, one of the ways we get around this challenge is to try to develop ways to visualize what's happen happening in the brain through things like brain scans. And in 2019, there was a lot of progress in developing novel ways to view the brain through um, imaging tools. Uh, in particular, um, there's been some progress demonstrated in um, developing a tool to visualize this alpha-synuclein protein that clumps in the brains of people with Parkinson's. Um, this would be really important to see um, clumped alpha-synuclein in Parkinson's patients not only to understand and help diagnose and understand how the um, disease is progressing, but to know whether new treatments that are in clinical development are actually changing this, what we think is pathological, this bad protein that accumulates in the brains of people with Parkinson's. So um, there were some initial progress reported um, that there was a, some tools developed that were tested in humans um, to visualize alpha-synuclein. They're not perfect, but um, that was a milestone to be able to test in humans, and they're optimizing the molecules um, even further to improve their ability to visualize alpha-synuclein. And we also at the foundation um, launched a large initiative called the Ken Griffin Alpha-Synuclein Imaging Competition. We're, we're supporting up to $8.5 million dollars uh, worth of research to, com uh, to groups that are going to compete to develop this tool that's going to be able to visualize synuclein in, in the living brain. So that's really exciting. Um, and then uh, on um, 
in addition to imaging and visualizing what's happening in the brain, um, there's been a lot of progress in identifying molecules, proteins, uh, and other types of molecules that change in people with Parkinson's in biofluids, in things like um, blood and uh, cerebrospinal fluid that can actually be sampled in people living uh, with Parkinson's. Uh, and so there's an initial, there's a lot of excitement around the ability to use blood tests and spinal fluid tests to um, develop more precise ways to diagnose Parkinson's and then track how the uh, disorder is progressing. And as I mentioned, these could also be used um, not just to understand what's happening in the disease, but to be used as a tool to understand whether new medicines that are being tested are actually changing the underlying biology and the underlying progression of, of Parkinson's. I think a brain scan or a blood test for Parkinson's would be really helpful on a number of levels. You know, we just got a question on if we could use this technology to look into people who have Parkinson's risk factors but have not been diagnosed yet or not showing the motor symptoms. What would their utility be in at-risk populations, Mark? Well, you can imagine um, if you can treat earlier, um, you have a you could potentially have a higher likelihood of preventing the disorder from uh, actually developing. So if we had a, for example, a brain scan that imaged alpha-synuclein, we know uh, for a fact that um, some of the changes to the brain can occur up to 10 years prior to developing symptoms of the disease. And if we had a, a tool that or a brain scan that visualized alpha-synuclein prior to developing symptoms, we could potentially intervene earlier and stop the accumulation of these bad proteins and actually demonstrate that drugs are stopping the accumulation of the protein through this tool. So it would enable earlier treatment and potentially, ultimately, the goal of prevention. And that, that is our goal, to stop PD before it starts. So thank you guys for these right. highlights. Before we move on, I just want to say that a lot more on these topics, um, both what we've done so far, and there will be more to come as we move forward on each of these programs on our website, our blog, our social channels. So please keep following. And I um, want to call out that, Rachel, your cognitive guide is linked in the resource list and here if you download the slides as well. So thank you guys for all your hard work. And why don't we turn ahead to the FAQ the frequently asked questions. So people um, with Parkinson's come to us, like I said, through webinars, through in-person events. I would say that the number one question is, how close are we to a cure? I know a lot of you are already writing in about this today. I want to call out that we did do a full hour on this last month, so there's a lot more information in that. But Brian, why don't you give us a quick snapshot of where you think we are today? Yeah, yeah. So obviously, this is, of course, the critical question and the one certainly here at the foundation where we're asking every day as well uh, and guiding our programs to try to get to that day even faster. But uh, when I, often when I get asked this question, I, I try to break it down because I think one of the things you have to think about when, when, when uh, answering a question like, where are we with the cure for any disease, you have to make sure you have a clear sense of what do you mean by cure. Uh, and so I tend to break this down in a few different stages, um, and then I can kind of indicate sort of where I think we are progress-wise at each of those stages. But probably for me, the first sort of version of the definition of a cure is, can you help someone with the disease today address their and alleviate the symptoms they have and, and to basically make their day-to-day -day function better, uh, sort of increase their quality of life, and, and sort of you know get rid of some of the disabling aspects of Parkinson's? 
Um, this doesn't mean you've necessarily cured the disease and at the sort of basic biology sense. It doesn't mean you've you know uh, you know completely replaced what has been lost, things like that. But at least you're uh, you're better able to help address those symptoms. And and in this case, we've actually come quite quite far. I mean, many of course people with Parkinson's already get pre prescribed uh, dopamine medications that that largely help with their motor symptoms. Um, we are seeing more and more in the last couple of years approvals of drugs that can help address some of the non-motor symptoms as well. And I think, you know, we're going to see certainly in the next few years more of those types of drugs, I think, coming on, on online. So in that regard, I think we actually are pretty close and further, pretty far along on our ability to at least help people alleviate and live with the symptoms of Parkinson's disease in a, in a sort of better way uh, so they can have improved quality of life. Of course, that's not, you know, the ultimate goal of what we're trying to do. So the second sort of definition of a cure I tend to think about is can we slow the disease process itself down, uh, reduce and sort of slow the, that kind of accumulation of disability that happens over time with, with a disease like Parkinson's? And that's a, you know, much harder question and sort of harder problem to solve because it requires us to have at least some better understanding of what we think that disease process actually is. Um, in that regard, though, we've actually, again, come, I think, a, a pretty far along. Um, you know, I mentioned before during the highlight section uh, sort of our increased understanding of the genetics of Parkinson's, and although everybody doesn't necessarily have a strong genetic cause to their disease, what the genetics have given us is more biological insight into the mechanisms in our bodies that, when disrupted, can actually lead to disease like Parkinson's. And because of that, there are a number of companies now that have developed drugs, and, and these were probably mentioned in the last webinar, uh, have developed drugs that can target some of these disease mechanisms that are actually now testing those in human trials today. So again, um, you know, it's still a few years off for those trials to truly report out. We won't know really the results of those efforts, but at least we have drugs now that are being tested in people that we think are targeting the disease mechanism with the ultimate goal of slowing it down and potentially slowing that accumulation of disability. So that's kind of the second category of, of getting to a cure. Um, the third category I tend to think of is, okay, so, you know, in someone who has the disease, maybe they've had it for a few years, they've lost, you know, some of the cells in the brain that, that you know, uh, produce the, the, the neurochemicals that are, that are um, sort of involved in the symptoms of Parkinson's, you know, what can you do to actually sort of fix and repair what's been lost. So even if you could slow down the disease process in someone at that stage, you know, they still have that sort of lost um, sort of, um, um, sort of um, uh, parts of their brain uh, and are not sort of fully functional. So um, you could obviously combine that with some of the symptom treating drugs and that could certainly help, but could you actually go in and sort of replace and fix and repair some of what's been lost? And that's kind of where we're seeing, again, some of the approaches, and I think we'll talk about this in a, in a little bit uh, in a moment, uh, a cell replacement type of approaches can you go in and actually kind of give back people the dopamine cells that have been lost in the brain, for example? And that's still a little bit further away. There's a lot kind of, um, of, of technology development and sort of, you know, assessment that we have to do to really understand whether that is truly, you know, something that we can, we can, we can do in someone's brain. Uh, the brain is still a very sort of complex organ. We don't know a lot about it just at the fundamental level to be able to go in and say and rewire it and fix it from the, from the, from the ground up. Uh, so that's still a little further away, but there is at least some effort in some uh, groups that are out there looking at ways to sort of try to replace some of those lost dopamine cells or restore some of that function. In fact, if you think about it, uh, deep brain stimulation, which is a, a surgical approach that's available today, is actually in some 
some ways an attempt to go in and try to fix the, the sort of circuitry problems that are that are uh, uh, sort of that go uh, awry in someone with Parkinson's. So to some degree, we do have at least some attempts to to try to do that kind of restoration uh, approach. Um, and then the last category, really, and, and Mark alluded to this, you know, is can we identify people before they really get the symptoms of Parkinson's and actually prevent them from getting Parkinson's altogether? For me, that would be kind of the ultimate definition of cure, that you basically prevented anybody from getting Parkinson's in the first place. That, of course, is much further off and is largely driven by the needs we have to identify people at those early, early stages. And we don't really have all the sort of biomarkers and sort of um, signals yet to figure that out, but we're actually making some progress in some of the big investments we're making now through, for example, through our large Parkinson's progression marker initiative um, is attempting to try to like, you know, uh, move that line even further back, sort of peel away that early stages of the disease so we can actually find those individuals before they get um, the, um, the sort of uh, symptoms of the disease. Great. So I, I want to keep us moving along, but just to reiterate what you said, it seems like we are closer than we've been. We have so many irons in the fire, which I think is really heartening that there are a lot of varied approaches, varied targets, different drugs and, and strategies against this disease that we're supporting and that scientists are moving on. So there's a lot of reason to be hopeful and we're also working on better tools to do this all much faster. So. Um, we are probably going to touch on some of the stuff that you covered in subsequent questions, but let's move on to Oh, my animation's being a little funny, so you'll see two of them on your screen. But um, the second one is, how do I get genetic testing for PD-linked mutations? So you talked about genetic research, um, more diverse voices and backgrounds in genetic research. I think a lot of people have this question about how can they find out their own genetic status and the difference between genetic testing for your own personal understanding and genetic research um, I want to get into. But Rachel, why don't I turn to you and you talk to us about what to consider before learning your genetic status if you carry a mutation linked to PD. I think a lot of people are really interested in genetic testing to learn more about themselves or their risk for Parkinson's or if they have Parkinson's to learn more about their disease. You raised a really good point about genetic testing to learn more about yourself or your disease being different from genetic research. Um, but I think to, to get to the first point about genetic testing, this is pretty widely available now through online services. People are very aware of things like 23andMe. And there are some considerations around that. Um, you know, as I said, there, there are different ways to do this, 23andMe or other online services. You can get th this through your doctor's office. And it's important to know what's being tested. So through 23andMe, for example, there are certain genetic mutations linked to Parkinson's that are tested through your doctor's office. You may be able to get different or more genetic mutations linked to Parkinson's tested. But what I think is an important caveat to mention about this is genetic counseling is really important both before and after testing because there are certain things that genetic testing can and can't tell you about your disease or about your risk for Parkinson's and, and about what the implications are for you and potentially your family. So working with a genetic counselor who is an expert in mutations that are linked to Parkinson's and other brain diseases and other diseases is really important as you think about genetic testing and as you get your results and interpret them for yourself. Um, so 
thinking about genetic testing and genetic counseling, whether you get it online or in person in your doctor's office, is really important. And then just mentioning genetic testing versus genetic research. So again, genetic testing is for the purposes of learning more information about yourself, just to have that information. Genetic research is getting genetic testing um, or, or getting your genetic information for the purposes of research. So there are genetic trials, for example, where you could participate and not even learn your genetic information um, because the trial does not disclose that information or, for example, because you didn't want to learn that information. So you could participate in genetic research for the sole purposes of participating in research, not for learning that information about yourself. The last thing I will say about genetic testing at the current time, it doesn't change our clinical management in the sense that if I were your doctor and we were going to do genetic testing on you to learn more about your genetic status and if you had genetic mutations linked to Parkinson's, it wouldn't change what we did with your medications or with your clinical management in the current state of what we know about Parkinson's and the treatment of Parkinson's. That being said, there are clinical trials that are going on right now that are testing drugs and therapies that target these mutations that we know about that are linked to Parkinson's. So it could, for example, change what you do about participating in research. For example, if you found out through genetic testing that you had a LERC2 mutation or a GBA mutation, you might be more inclined to say, I want to know what trials are going on that are targeting drugs against LERC2 or against GBA. So there is some information that could inform your participation, for example, in these ongoing clinical trials, but it wouldn't necessarily change what your doctor does with your medication management. And Rach, some of those trials are are recruiting for people who have been diagnosed with Parkinson's already but carry these mutations. But there's a lot of studies that are enrolling people who are carriers of these mutations not yet showing signs to just better understand that progression, right? So we just got a question on if I have family risk factors, what could I do? And theoretically, you could join genetic research if you carry one of those mutations and help us kind of move no toward that prevention model. Is that right? Well, that's a good point. In general, research needs people both with and without Parkinson's, family members of people with Parkinson's, friends of people with Parkinson's. So if you're interested in participating in research, we need people to serve as what we call control volunteers to help us understand what what normal aging looks like compared with Parkinson's, what, as you said, people who carry these mutations, who don't yet have Parkinson's or don't have Parkinson's, to compare what this looks like and, and to participate in research. So that's a very good point, that research needs all types of volunteers. So it's a personal decision, but it's really valuable for research if you do decide to learn your genetic status. So let's move on to stem cells. Um, Brian, I'm going to ask you to comment on the science a little bit about the therapies in development. You alluded to those when we hit the first bullet. But Mark, um, after that, I want you to chime in too on how stem cells can help us learn more about the disease. I was just looking at some of the new grants that we've made, and it seems that a lot of them are using these disease in a dish from um, pluripotent stem cells. So I want you to explain that. But first, Brian, why don't you just give us a, a primer on where we are with stem cell therapies? Sure, yeah. So, so again, just kind of a quick refresher, you know, kind of what stem cells are. Uh, they're essentially cells in our body that have the capability of, uh, of making 
lots of other types of cells. And probably the you know the classic sort of stem cell that everybody sort of tends to think about is the embryonic stem cell, which is an early early cell during development uh, uh, that can basically make all the cells of the body, and that's kind of the ultimate stem cell. As we grow and develop, you know, uh, different parts of our body, different organs in our body can establish um, sort of subsets of so-called stem cells that are more there to help um, sort of generate new cells of the same sort of tissue type. And so those are, uh, sometimes we call those uh, adult stem cells. You might hear um, fancier names, somatic stem cells. But again, those are a different type of stem cell population, but kind of with the same general concept that they can be used to to sort of make other, other cell types. Um, uh, a more sort of recent discovery and approach is, is almost sort of an artificial version of a stem cell that uh, researchers about almost 10 years ago discovered, but has really, I think, revolutionized the field, is that we can actually create kind of uh, artificial stem cells from from existing cells in the body, in particular skin or blood cells, uh, and you, you may hear us sometimes talking about the, a type of stem cell called the induced pluripotent stem cell. Uh, it's just again a fancy name for saying a, a cell, a stem cell that we've essentially created in the laboratory um, to to have all the features of a stem cell that can then be used to make other types of cells. So there are a whole variety of different types of stem cells. Now, why we are excited about them therapeutically, and then I'll let Mark sort of talk about some of the research side of, of use of stem cells, but therapeutically is the idea, of course, is that can you use them to generate replacement cells for what is lost in a disease like Parkinson's, in particular the dopamine cells in the brain, and then you take those cells, those newly generated cells, and put them back, transplant them back into the brain and restore some of the function that's been lost in in, in, in Parkinson's disease. And so that, of course, I think has been something that people have been really excited about uh, for a number of years. In fact, some of the earliest um, sort of therapeutic approaches that were, you know, sort of tested and developed for Parkinson's uh, back in even in the 80s and 90s was to use not necessarily stem cells because they hadn't really been discovered yet at that point, um, but actually tissue from, from early developing brain tissue uh, as a tissue replacement for people with Parkinson's. And there were a number of trials that were actually done in the 90s and the early 2000s that attempted to use this approach uh, in people with Parkinson's. Unfortunately, for lots of different reasons, the, the, the trials did not show as much pro uh, promise and progress as, as was hoped. Um, there were a few people, I think, that maybe potentially benefited from the transplants, but a lot of people either did, had no uh, benefit, and then in a few cases, there were actually some, some adverse and some, some side effects of, of the transplants. Um, that sort of put the field back a few years. They had to kind of go back to the drawing board a bit and try to make sure they understood what these transplants were actually doing in the brain. But during that time, that's actually when the stem cells sort of um, stem cells were really discovered in the brain, uh, and and uh, people realized that they could maybe move away from the tissue transplants to actual stem cell transplants. And so today, we have a lot of um, groups that are working on efforts. We have a, uh, a handful of uh, um, um, programs that are in sort of early therapeutic uh, testing and development. And so we're starting to get, I think, and we'll be continuing to get a little bit of more insight into um, uh, whether these types of replacement approaches can can hold benefit for Parkinson's. Right now, in their current form as sort of replacement therapies, they will only probably ever be as good as um, um, levodopa, 
which is the more sort of drug-based uh, pharmacological approach to treating and replacing dopamine uh, in the brains of people with Parkinson's, or deep brain stimulation, which is sort of an electrical way of, of sort of correcting the circuitry in the brain uh, and then sort of improving motor symptoms and disease. So no one right now thinks that um, necessarily the current versions of these stem cell approaches will necessarily do much better than those approaches, but it would offer a different way of replacing the sort of lost dopamine in the brain and partially maybe even restore some of the function in the brain. So that's why people are excited. Now, there's a slight sort of corollary to how people are using stem cells therapeutically that I just kind of want to uh, mention as well, because I think we tend to hear a lot about these in the news, and it's a different type of, of, of way of using um, cells as therapy. Uh, and that is not so much about replacing what is lost, but using different types of stem cells in the body that we think might produce different types of factors, uh, potentially uh, protective factors essentially as little sort of factories that can go in and maybe provide factors to existing dopamine cells in the brain that remain in the brain of someone with Parkinson's and that maybe these factors can help sort of protect and sort of uh, prevent those cells from, from dying. And so it's a slightly different way of thinking about use of stem cells, um, but it is one of the approaches that we often see mentioned in the news. And, and this is more on the sort of unfortunate side, there are a lot of clinics out there around the world that tend to uh, claim um, that they're using these types of stem cells and they will offer to um, for, for individuals who want to pay for it uh, to infuse these stem cells into your body in different ways um, and, and uh, quote unquote sort of cure your Parkinson's disease. Um, and this has become a particular challenge in the field because it's really hard to sort of assess what some of these approaches are doing. A lot of these you know, uh, clinics aren't necessarily doing uh, uh, work that is uh, certainly not approved by any regulatory body. Um, and because of that, uh, it's really hard sometimes to distinguish what is sort of the true sort of rigorous research that's being done by a number of groups out there on these types of approaches versus kind of these clinics that are offering them, I think, to, to, to patients who are willing to pay for, for them. And so, so that particular type of approach has, I think, become a little more complex in, in, in the field. Maggie, maybe just to add on the research side um, why we're excited about some of the stem cell development. Brian, Brian described this technology that's evolved where you can actually take a skin sample and, or blood sample from a human uh, with Parkinson's and then generate uh, what's called an induced pluripotent cell that could then develop into any type of cell in the body. Um, and what we've seen in the last year or so is a lot of excitement in using these types of cells. Um, there are a number of studies that have generated repositories of these cell lines from people with Parkinson's disease and controls, also people that harbor some of the mutations that were discussed earlier. And researchers are taking these cells, putting them into a Petri dish, and um, doing two things, really, that I think are exciting. One um, is to understand the biology of what's happening with Parkinson's and with some of these genetic targets. There is really no better environment than actually having a human cell um, with the human gene um, uh, from a, a, a human to understand what that uh, gene is doing biologically and look at it under a microscope and, and manipulate it in a dish. So a lot of research into underlying biology of these genes associated with Parkinson's disease in the human cells, um, which is exciting. The other thing that is exciting is that a lot of um, drugs are being tested on these cells in the Petri dish. So 
Um, we think that having these cells available from people with Parkinson's and people that have some of the mutations associated with Parkinson's uh, will provide a more predictive model, a more predictive disease in a dish, as you indicated, that um, we can test novel molecules, novel drugs against, and see if they um, do what we think we'd like them to do, and that and can, can be done a lot quicker than using animal models or other um, types of models. And so having a better predictive model that uh, for drug testing is a really useful way to, to utilize these stem cells. Okay, so it's kind of science fiction. Stem cells are a therapy in themselves, although we're not there yet, so let's exercise caution until then, and also a tool to get to new treatments. So a lot of excitement there. And again, a plug for a previous webinar. We did go into stem cells um, earlier this year, if that's something you want to learn more about. Okay, next question. Um, Mark, let's stay with you. So DAT scan, a dopamine transporter scan, what is it and should I have one whether I have been diagnosed with PD or if I'm at risk? Yeah, maybe I'll start and then ask Rachel to jump in from a clinical perspective. So a DAT scan, as you said, is a dopamine transporter scan. It's a brain scan that's currently approved um, by the FDA um, to be used uh, as a tool for diagnostic purposes. And what it does, um, we've mentioned that in Parkinson's disease, one of the primary uh, changes in the brain is the loss of these cells that make dopamine. And the DAT scan brain, image, brain scan is a way to visualize these cells in the brain. So you, they inject a dye uh, intravenously and then use a special camera essentially to take a picture of the brain that allows uh, neurologists and radiologists to see the level of dopamine cells in a person's brain. Um, and so the current utility is um, to confirm a diagnosis um, that uh, by a neurologist that is used uh, in parallel with the assessment of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Um, it is a biomarker, it's a brain scan, and what um, some of the research is showing is that in early uh, people with Parkinson's and newly diagnosed patients, uh, over the first year or two, the DAT scan actually can change about 10 to 15% in the first uh, several years. So from a research perspective, this is really important because it's a useful measurement and useful tool um, that drug developers can use and incorporate into their clinical trials to assess whether their new drug that they're testing is actually changing the progression or the changing the loss of dopamine um, by DAT scan. Um, in terms of whether someone's been diagnosed and whether it's useful to have a scan, I'll ask uh, Rachel to answer that question. So the diagnosis of Parkinson's is really what we call clinical. So when you go see your movement disorder specialist or your doctor, they're looking at your symptoms. They're looking to see if you have the movement symptoms of Parkinson's, a tremor, slowness, stiffness, potentially walking and balance problems. They're also looking for some of the non-movement symptoms that can go along with Parkinson's. They want to ask you questions to see if you have these symptoms of Parkinson's. And they're basing your diagnosis on those symptoms because we don't have what Mark's been talking about, a biomarker, an objective 
measure of Parkinson's, a scan or a blood test that in and of itself can diagnose Parkinson's. And so a DAS scan in and of itself, by itself, without a doctor's visit or a doctor's opinion, cannot diagnose Parkinson's. Now, if the diagnosis is in question, so for example, if you don't have those classic symptoms or if you're not responding to the medication or if things aren't going along as we'd expect them to, and in one particular case, if you have a tremor that we're not sure if it's another kind of movement disorder called an essential tremor, which is typically where both hands are shaking when you're moving them rather than, or when you're using them, rather than the tremor of Parkinson's, which typically at the beginning is in one hand or in one side when you're resting it or when you're not moving it. If we're not sure which kind of tremor it is, a DAT scan can help us tell the difference between those two. So it can help us tell the difference between Parkinson's and between an essential tremor because in essential tremor, the dopamine system is not affected like it is in Parkinson's. So the DAT scan can be particularly helpful in diagnosing those two different conditions. But if you're looking at some of the other different conditions that can look like Parkinson's, which we will talk about a little bit later, there are some diseases that can look like Parkinson's. We call them atypical Parkinsonisms. They're things that have these uh, long acronyms like MSA, CBD, PSP, and things like that. A DAT scan cannot help us tell the difference between those because the dopamine system is affected in all of those and the DAT scan will be abnormal in both Parkinson's and in those conditions. So it wouldn't help us in that situation. So a useful tool, but we still need better ones. Okay, and the last of our frequently asked questions, which is maybe after the first one, the most frequently asked, what about <laughs> medical marijuana? Rachel, sending this one to you. Yes, a very popular topic. Um, and as you said, we did a, a whole webinar uh, almost entirely devoted to this, so I'll just give a, a short answer to this. But uh, medical marijuana is, um, you know, it has evidence to support that it could be potentially beneficial in Parkinson's. So our brain and our bodies have receptors that respond to the chemicals in marijuana. This is called the endocannabinoid system. And the highest concentration of these receptors are in a part of the brain that's affected by Parkinson's, which is called the basal ganglia. So as I said, it makes sense to wonder whether marijuana would be helpful in Parkinson's. There have been some clinical trials of medical marijuana in, or cannabinoids in Parkinson's disease, looking mostly at the tremor or the movement symptoms or dyskinesia, which is that involuntary, uncontrolled movement that can come on after many years of Parkinson's or using levodopa. But mostly the data to date has been inconclusive, meaning that some studies look like they're positive, others look like they're negative. And so we really just don't have the data to date to support the use of medical marijuana in Parkinson's disease. For the non-movement symptoms like pain or sleep, there have been some small studies as well or some surveys of, of people reporting their use that say that this could potentially be beneficial for, for symptoms like pain or sleep. Um, the problem is that these studies have 
studied all different kinds of medical marijuana. So different doses, different formulations, different combinations of THC, which is the part that has the sort of psychoactive component versus CBD. Um, so we really just don't know yet and, and don't have good recommendations on what could potentially be beneficial and what would, again, be the right formulation, the right dose. Um, and so we just need more data on this right now. And I would um, end by saying studying this is hard because there are a lot of regulations around this. It's a Schedule One drug, so it's, it's hard to study. Um, there are also a lot of people who are using it. Um, so I, again, there's a lot of, it's, it's kind of what we're describing, or researchers are describing as kind of the Wild West. There's a lot of people using it. It's hard to get data. And, um, and there's a lot of potential side effects with it. So we, we know we need more data. There are ongoing trials and um, our online observational study, Fox Insight, will be launching a survey uh, in the coming year to learn more about how people are using this and what their potential benefits and side effects with it are. All right. Um, and I'll just say on that webinar, we had one of our members of our patient council share his own experience with cannabis use, and it was a very interesting conversation. So tune into that one, too. Okay. Um, I'm going to ask you guys, you've been giving such thorough answers, which I think everyone appreciates, but we have so many questions and our time's dwindling. So I'm going to um, start going through some and kind of do a lightning round. So I'll ask you to answer um, uh, thoroughly but succinctly, if that's possible. So <laughs> some of the ones that we got submitted in advance. Rachel, are muscle cramps part of Parkinson's? Typically, when people talk about muscle cramps, it's more muscle spasms, which we refer to as dystonia. And that's more um, muscle spasms that pull a body part into an abnormal position. So the most common is toes curling under or a foot turning in. This can be um, often happen when medication is wearing off or like in the morning when medication is not working as well. Um, treatments can be medication adjustments, um, botulinum toxin or Botox being injected into a body part that's affected um, or physical therapy and exercise. Mark, what are the Parkinsonisms? We've talked about these a little bit. Lewy body dementia, um, uh, PSP, MSA, CBD. Can you run through some of those and the differences? Yeah, well, just briefly, Parkinsonisms is an umbrella term, and actually Parkinson's disease is included as one of the Parkinsonisms, and it just happens to be the largest. There are other um, acronym uh, diseases like PSP, MSA, CBD. All of these present with Parkinson's-like symptoms. Um, but if you look into uh, what happens in the brains of individuals with these different disorders, it, it is slightly different. Um, it is a challenge, though, particularly early in the disease course with all Parkinsonisms to really diagnose individuals and separate them into the different categories because, as I mentioned, they all present early on with a lot of the similar movement disorder symptoms. Um, so as the disorders progress and other symptoms might develop, that gives neurologists clues about what disorder um, they might have. Um, but I would say many of the research questions that we're tackling are addressing all Parkinsonisms. They have a lot of the same features. And if we were develop, to develop treatments for Parkinson's disease, it is likely that many of the treatments may be beneficial for the Parkinsonisms. 
Um, Rachel, do some people have a less aggressive Parkinson's disease than others, and if so, why? Parkinson's is a very individualized and what we call kind of heterogeneous disease. So everybody does have a, an individualized and unique combination of symptoms and individual progression. So there are some people who do progress at a slower rate than others. We tend to, or we have tended to historically kind of lump people into these very general categories of people who have more tremor at the onset versus people who have more walking and balance problems at, at diagnosis or onset. Um, in general, people who tend to have more walking and balance problems and less tremor when they're diagnosed or at the beginning of their Parkinson's do tend to have a little bit of a faster progression as compared to people who have more tremor and less or no walking and balance problems at the outset. There are some other factors we look at in, in conjunction with that, and we're researching more in our PPMI study and, and other studies to try to find out better ways and more ways to predict who progresses at what rate. Hey, you, you mentioned PPMI. I don't think we've shared that acronym um, thus far in this discussion. It's our Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative. It's our largest study of nearly uh, 1,500 people around the world where we're following the disease and trying to better understand its progression so we can better measure and treat it. Um, Brian, any of the genetics work inform maybe what form aggressive-wise a PD someone might have? There's, there's some early work on this. We, you know, we do know, for example, that is some of the genetic forms might have a slightly slower progression of the disease uh, than sort of more traditional uh, Parkinson's. Uh, they might start earlier uh, at an earlier age than sort of more traditional Parkinson's. Uh, and in some cases might actually have some, some other sort of non-motor features uh, that might even be more aggressive than sort of more traditional Parkinson's. So it's early days because we don't have sort of a, the large um, sort of uh, uh, cohorts of people that we've followed for extensive periods of time quite like we do for more traditional Parkinson's. So, so knowing the progression of, of some of those different genetic forms is still a little bit earlier stage research, but um, at least we're able to start gleaning some of the differences. And as, as you said, in the, that large PPMI study, we do include include some people with genetic ver uh, com um, versions of Parkinson's and are starting to explore some of those questions. I, I, just to add, I think it's a really important point that the PPMI and other studies are pointing towards and leading towards is to have a better, more objective way to predict how one might progress and what symptoms might develop. And there are certainly genetic tests that can be done. Um, we're learning more about the progression of um, these types of genetic associated disorders, but I think there are also other imaging and um, fluid-based markers that can be useful ultimately as a constellation, as a panel to predict how one might um, develop uh, in their symptoms and, and in terms of their progression. So not just if you'll get Parkinson's, but what it might look like if you do. Um, Brian, I'm going to stay with you and pivot a bit. Um, a lot of questions about mannitol. Can you tell us what that is and where we are in testing it for PD? Sure, sure. So, so mannitol, for those who don't know, it's essentially it's a sugar substitute, kind of used as a sweetener. Often I think it's used in foods that are um, for people with diabetes because uh, it doesn't sort of absorb into the body quite the same way as more traditional sugars do and therefore doesn't increase sort of blood sugar levels. And so you can get 
you know, the sort of sweet flavor without the sort of rise in blood sugar that is a problem for people with diabetes. But um, in laboratory research over the last few years, there have been some groups in, Parkin in the, who are researchers in Parkinson's disease who uh, identified mannitol in a screen of different types of molecules that seems to uh, uh, impact and sort of reduce the clumping of the protein alpha-synuclein. And so I'm pretty sure we probably talked about alpha-synuclein in past webinars, but uh, alpha-synuclein and, and the sort of abnormal clumping of the protein alpha-synuclein is sort of a key pathological hallmark of Parkinson's disease. Sort of we find these clumps of the protein in the brains of pretty much everybody with Parkinson's disease or sort of classically defined Parkinson's disease. Uh, and so we think that must have some fundamental feature, um, sort of, uh, you know, contribution to the disease. So, so the idea of mannitol is that it might have some ability to go into the brain and sort of target these clumps and in some ways um, sort of reduce the clumping or sort of target the clumping in some way. And again, all of that has been done really just in laboratory uh, sort of models and, and sort of research in that effort. But because of that and because it's a essentially a pretty easily available um, sort of um, uh, nutrient that you can, you can access, a lot of people, of course, have been very interested in uh, taking mannitol as, as a potential uh, protective factor for their for their Parkinson's disease. So there's not a lot of, of course, good data to suggest that that really does have impact in Parkinson's yet. There actually is a, a trial being run out of Israel right now um, in about, I think, a 60 or so uh, people with Parkinson's that is actively trying to test some of those questions. Uh, it's uh, being designed mostly as a safety tolerability um, study because we don't know yet at the level of you know dosing you might need to take mannitol uh, to have any benefits you know or is that going to be safe and tolerable in people with Parkinson's and so of course the trial is looking at that primarily but they all are also exploring some 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 measures potentially of impact it might have on on clinical features of Parkinson's as well so some more data to come from that trial I think it just really launched last year and I think won't really report out until probably the end of uh, 2020 if not early 2021 uh, but that's because obviously they want to do a good rigorous sort of uh, assessment of, of, of the treatment. So as of right now, if you're someone with Parkinson's who is interested in taking mannitol, it's certainly, you know, not a you know, it's not going to harm you in any significant way, at least as long as you're using it in, in sort of approved levels of, 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 of amounts that are, that, that are sort of uh, that your doctor thinks is okay. Uh, it's important, of course, to talk to your doctor first. Um, but there really isn't a lot of evidence yet, certainly not human data, to really suggest that it is going to profoundly impact your Parkinson's disease or slow the disease down. And I think we'll need a more rigorous sort of clinical data before we can make that kind of assessment. Okay. So in a trial, more to come. Um, exactly. Rachel, a lot of questions on levodopa, carbidopa, brand name Cinemet. How long should I wait to start on medication? How long before side effects arise? Why does it become less effective over time? Can you give us some background? And you want me to be really succinct on this. <laughs> um, so, so three questions, of, you have one minute. <laughs> um, yeah, these are such common questions and really hard ones to answer because, um, you know, if and when to start medication, particularly Cinemet, which is the gold standard medication for Parkinson's, are really individualized and, and personal decisions. There are no real hard and fast rules around medications. There's no cookbook approach to this because, as we discussed, it, Parkinson's is very individualized and very unique. 
Medications, including Cinemat for Parkinson's, all treat the symptoms. So when symptoms get in the way of what you want or need to do, including exercise, go out with your friends, play with your grandkids, travel, whatever it is, medication is there for you and you should take it. Now, there's long been a debate about if and when to take Cinemet versus other Parkinson's medications, particularly in young people, because of the potential with long-term use for side effects or complications, particularly like dyskinesia, which are those involuntary, abnormal, uncontrolled movements. That being said, not everybody gets dyskinesia, and if you do get dyskinesia, it's not always bothersome or you know un uncontrollable, and we have ways to treat it, including medication adjustments, adding other medications, and ultimately, if necessary, deep brain stimulation. So there are a lot of ways to manage that. That's all to say, if you need medication now, you need ways to um, you know help your quality of life and improve your quality of life now, you don't want to sacrifice that or hold medication now for a potential complication that may never happen down the line. Don't save your umbrella when it's raining. <laughs> um, one of my favorite analogies. Okay, um, that was a good job of being succinct. Thanks, Rach. Mark, hopefully uh, an easy one. What is the difference between young onset PD and what we mean when we say early onset PD? Uh, I don't think there's any difference, really. And young onset is typically um, below the age of 50, I think, right, Rachel? Yeah, I think there's, this is more of a vocabulary thing, and it's been evolving over the years. I think typically young and early are synonymous, so we've been um, typically calling that before the age of, of 50. Okay. If we say early stage PD, though, I think when we talk about some of these studies looking for people who've just been diagnosed, that might be right. what they were referring to. So yeah. no matter what age yeah. you get PD, when it's within, do we usually say two years? That's kind of early onset. Yeah, That's when a lot of studies are looking for you. Or often before you really start medication sometimes, mm -hmm. you might hear us say the word de novo, sort of, you know, from kind of early diagnosis when uh, are often that's often a sweet spot for some trials because they want to sort of test the medication in the absence of other medications at the early stage of the disease. Yeah, it depends on the study. So as Brian said, it you know it may be three years, five years, but I do think that's an important point that people often aren't aware of is that some of these studies that are testing the what we call disease modifying medications or therapies that are aiming to slow or stop the progression of disease, they're looking for people who have not yet started medication. So that's something to take into consideration when you're thinking about medication. Okay, Ed, we're, we're approaching 1 o'clock, but I want to ask one other good question. Um, Brian, I'm going to send this one to you. The gut-bacteria-Parkinson's connection, what do we know about Parkinson's in the gut and is there any therapeutic intervention at this point? What do you think is going on there? All right. Uh, like Rachel, a very uh, complex question and, and very little time <laughs> to answer it. So I guess at the we highest level, there one. Is, I'll give you some time. Yeah. There is, you know, there is this idea largely based on when we sort of look in people with Parkinson's, it's sort of where the different pathology, you know, sort of lies. There does seem to be this sort of progression people have reported that uh, where they see some of the early, earliest stages of Parkinson's, even before some of the symptoms show up, 
um, there seems to be pathology in sort of the gut nervous system, so the parts of the, the, the nervous system that control gut function, and that with later stages of the disease, you start to see the pathology uh, in other parts of the, of the nervous system and ultimately the brain. So this idea that the sort of Parkinson's might start in the gut and sort of make its way into the brain has been, I think, a powerful idea really for probably the last, certainly the last, you know, uh, 15 uh, years or so. Um, now, the other question is sort of the role of sort of gut bacteria in the, in, in, in the intestines and sort of, you know, the role that might have in, in either triggering or contributing to Parkinson's. I think this is also, a, you know, an interesting area that's been emerging in the last few years, especially as our techniques and sort of laboratory methods have gotten better at being able to actually measure all of those different uh, critters in our gut uh, and being able to actually look at that in people's Parkinson's versus people who don't have Parkinson's, for example. And I think we're starting to learn a little bit about sort of the gut makeup, you know, micro, microbiome, as we call it, uh, in, in people with Parkinson's and people who don't have it. And so through that, I think we're starting to sort of uncover some, uh, you know, some different ideas that might be able to, to be converted into potential therapeutics with the idea of whether they are causal for the disease or maybe contributory to the disease by targeting that microbiome it might be there might be some ways to to sort of help with with some of the issues in parkinson's and there's actually one interesting sort of you know uh, it's less about the disease cause but uh, we do know that people with parkinson's do have problems with their sort of gut function they actually you know with through constipation and things like that and there's even one aspect where it's uh, where um, uh, you know, it's hard for the for the food to kind of get from the stomach into the intestines and things like that. And so, one idea and what that can lead to is then your traditional medications that you take for your Parkinson's may not work as well simply because it's not getting through the gut system quite so 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 easy. Uh, some ideas are out there about targeting the microbiome to sort of help improve that function with the idea that that would actually just make your existing medications work a little bit better. And so I think there are some, some reasonable some efforts that are starting to look at, at those kinds of approaches. But again, I think thinking about whether changes in the gut or microbiome are actually causing or contributing to Parkinson's disease sort of mechanistically, I think is still a little bit early stage, uh, but there's a lot of groups that are, that are starting to explore that idea. Interesting. I might have to steal critters in your gut for some of my future communications. Um, okay. Like <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm going to steal a technique from my longtime partner in these webinars, uh, our beloved Dave Iverson, and want to go around the table and just share a last thought from each of you. We have less than two weeks in 2019. It's been a monumental research year and just want to hear what you want to leave our patient audience with message of, of hope or inspiration what do you want them to walk away um, from today with? So, Mark, why don't I start with you? Well, I mean, we've said before this is the most robust pipeline of new treatments that we've seen in our existence. We've also seen a lot of progress in developing better ways to measure. So, coupling the new treatments with better diagnostic and measurement tools is a really exciting prospect. Great. How about Brian? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree 100% with with Mark's assessment. I think just that that pipeline is becoming so exciting, and, and we use it as a core sort of metric internally here to, to to know how to you know sort of cater our funding programs, and and just seeing that progress has been amazing uh, to to see. You know, I guess for me, I would kind of harken back to to my highlight from the start, which is I think also this growing. 
uh, need and sort of desire to, to increase the diverse voice of people with Parkinson's around the world and bringing them into that sort of whole research effort, I think, is really, really critical and, and exciting that there are a lot of efforts now to really try to do that, in a, in both on the research side and sort of the, the, the engagement recruitment side into studies. And I, I think more to come on that, but I, I think that for me is also very exciting. And Rach, last word. It's hard to encapsulate in, you know, just in a couple words, but I think, um, you know, I, we all feel so privileged to be doing this work and you see the diversity of it. Um, you know, I bring the clinical perspective, but I bring that from the patient. So, you know, something like this where we're able to hear from you all and your questions and, and get that to inform our work and, and your priorities and, and bring that to our educational resources, but also our research initiatives as well is, is really a privilege and, and a priority for us. Great. Well, thank the three of thanks to the three of you, and thank you to everyone for a great year in our webinar series. I hope that you completed our survey on your screen to let us know what you want to hear more about next year. And I hope that you listen to this event again, share, listen to the other ones from this year in the library, and uh, you can already mark your calendar for our next webinar on January 16th, where we'll discuss diet with Parkinson's, both what you should be doing to eat healthy, but also how to travel and enjoy enjoy a glass of wine, and also you know, live your life with PD as regarded diet. So thank you guys all again. Have a great rest of the year, and we'll see you next month. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.